This is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land and water. Hello, I'm Glenn Wheeler. Welcome to episode 265, brought to you with listener support. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Matters. Critical minerals is a phrase you're hearing a lot these days. They are the precious elements under the ground that will supposedly re-engineer the world and save us from the climate crisis. Canada has a critical mineral strategy, and the province of Newfoundland and Labrador held public consultations on the subject earlier this year. But the policy discussion is little more than high-level happy talk, with no acknowledgement of the sheer enormity of the challenges before us. Our whole way of life is built on fossil fuels, and there isn't the time or the supply of critical minerals to get us off the merry-go-round. Sadly, that doesn't stop mining companies from trying. Indigenous people from around the world are in the front lines of the desperate urge to dig from Burgio to northwest Ontario to Nevada and Scandinavia. Our guest this week is one of the world's leading researchers about critical minerals and the shortcomings of strategies in which critical minerals will save the world. People from around the globe follow his work regarding the challenges in making the shift from our economic and industrial models. Simon Michaud is Associate Professor of Geometallurgy at the Geological Survey of Finland, and he's our guest on Mi'kmaq Matters. So Simon, uh, great to have you on the program to talk about critical minerals. And uh, I guess we could first start by observing that uh, critical minerals have um, been, uh, are posing challenges for Indigenous people uh, across the globe uh, in the United States in regard to lithium in um, in Canada, in Australia, where you're, you're from originally, in Scandinavia, where you are now with the Sami people. So a big, uh, very top of mind for Indigenous people. Um, so let's, uh, uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, what critical minerals are, the part they play in our thinking about responding to climate change, and what is wrong with that thinking? Um, so first, let's let's start by uh, telling, giving people a brief introduction to critical minerals, of which there are thirty, and uh, I guess they're they're called critical because they're they are regarded as very important in responding to um, to climate change and uh, alternate uh, industrial practices. So uh, critical minerals, uh, there's 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 a there's two parts of the calculation. Is what minerals do we need of economic importance? Like how important are they? And the second calculation is how scarce are they, or how how difficult are they to get a hold of in in the quantities that we need? And that those two combinations. Those two calculations make a classification of whether minerals are, are critical or not. So what they've done is they've, they've done a big chart up and all minerals go onto this scatter plot and the top right-hand corner is where all the critical ones are because they're very important. We can't do without them, but they're hard to get. Mm. However, all of those those maps, like I used to be part of the European Union uh, project to actually sort of you know map out these minerals and um, that map that uh, thinking of the critical minerals is actually looking backwards not forwards 
It actually looks at what the industry needed for the previous four years. So the the, the map that came out in uh, 2019 looked at minerals from 2012 to 2016. So what that means is what minerals are critical while we're still running on fossil fuels? Project into the future. Take fossil fuels away. Now, fossil fuels are going, and they're going around now. Right. And so, so we need the after fossil fuels plan now. But fossil fuels is an energy source that underpins everything we do. Right. So if we were to take that energy source away and replace it with something else, the ability to do everything shifts. It it it, it changes. The nature of energy will actually change the nature of the system that we actually run with that energy. So that idea of critical minerals is all good and well, but it's how things are now. If you were to predict into the into the future, um, mining of minerals is very energy intensive, and a lot of that energy is fossil fuel based. Hmm. So that list will grow larger, I believe, is what I'm trying to say. Yes, there's going to be a lot more than thirty minerals. Yes. So and and let's and let's pause there to uh, to talk a little bit about the getting off of fossil fuels. Of course, people now see the advertisement for electric vehicles, and they might think that, well, you know, we're going to replace our our old cars with these uh, EVs, and um, and that will be that. But getting off fossil fuels is actually quite complicated because, as you say, our old economy, our basically our way of life is is based on the availability of, of fossil fuels. One issue that you've talked about is um, the production of uh, of steel. And uh, coal uh, providing the the high temperatures necessary for that, and they're not being a renewable energy alternative for steel production. Let's say I'm going to build a solar panel, and that solar panel's got silicon wafers in it. To make that silicon wafer, we've got to get metallurgical grade silicon, which is very very pure quartz, very pure, and there's not that many deposits around that are pure enough. We're then going to heat that quartz up to 2,200 degrees Celsius. At the moment, this is all done in China, and they use coking coal to do it. Now, if we were to take coal away, how do we heat that silicon? Now, there are options, and all these options do work, but they work on a small scale. So everything has its place. So we could use biofuels, hydrogen, or we could use an electric arc furnace. Now, all of those things work, but if you were to scale up the amount of coking coal that is used just for this application how much biofuel, how much hydrogen, or how much energy has got to come off the electric grid to produce those solar panels. And that is a conversation that has not been had yet. And that is actually across all manufacturing activities. Um, Iron ore is the same. A lot of energy goes into making iron ore with coal. There is a new system that comes up, has come up that where we can actually have, um, uh, make iron ore in a hydrogen atmosphere, which is actually more efficient as it turns out. So, all right. How much hydrogen do we need and how are we going to make it? If we're not allowed to use natural gas to make it, we've got to use an electric uh, um, uh, fuel cells, hydrogen fuel cells to split it. And that takes about 50 kilowatt hours a kilogram, right, to make the hydrogen. And if you need several million tons of hydrogen, now we're talking about quite a bit of energy. Everything is attached to everything else in a system. So when you actually make one change, it has a way of rippling across the whole system. And that's how we must think from now on, I think. 
And getting back to critical minerals, uh, you mentioned that the list is going to change. We have a list now that is sort of um, looking backwards and not forwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have a a supply issue to um, have all the critical minerals we need just uh, for the uh, the outdated processes. There, even on those assumptions, aren't enough. And mm-hmm. uh, you've written that uh, we would have to find. Uh, the same amount in the next 10 years as uh, we've found in all the time before us. So that's uh, that sounds unrealistic. So I actually have new numbers. My work's gone through peer review. I can give you some exact numbers now. My work's going, and I'm going into a peer review journal um, and the corrections have come back and I actually made those adjustments and they've required me to put extra things into the calculation and so that the total number of minerals has gone up the iea has said well not not said that they've actually written in a report and stated that by 2050 100 of the this in 2021 so it's fairly recent by 2050 the entire transport fleet will be off fossil fuels uh the entire maritime shipping uh industry will be off fossil fuels and they've got combinations of electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cells and the ammonia um, um, the, the ammonia industry and, and and all that, and so I've taken that footprint and I've projected it through. What do we need to do? But now we've got twenty seven years. Yeah, you know, twenty seven years time it will be twenty fifty. So then I've actually worked out the amount of metals that we would need in these units. And my my work is a very crude calculation. It doesn't include everything, and it's 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 too complicated as it is. And and so it needs to be met met with other studies now. But what I've got, as simple as it is, we will need, um, let's let's say the, the mining industry at the moment, let's say copper. They're producing 24.2 million tonnes of copper a year. We want to electrify everything. There's this copper involved. Right, so this is 20 to 24.2 million tonnes. But if we need 6.1 billion tonnes of copper, and, and that's just to replace the number of units that we had around us in 2018, now, now, as time goes on, that will get larger. So we've already passed that point. But to do that, we need 254 years of copper production, right, to, to, to hit that target to replace what we have now. So 254 years has to be collapsed down into 27 years with the understanding it takes 20 years to start a mine, a new mine, and get it going again. The commodities industry moves much slower than the technology development um, industry. So that's not, that, that, that copper's one, nickel's another. We need uh, 532 years of nickel production. Uh, and then we've got all the uh, trace elements like lithium and cobalt. Now, they're all, lithium, and, for example, we've mined uh, all, already, but it's used for other applications, and it tends to be mined in relatively small quantities. But we now want to mine these boutique elements in large volumes like copper and steel copper and iron right and that's the problem right now we're ramping up production as fast as we can and faster than we've ever done before but as we were in 2022 as as is 2019 is probably the most sensible year to use because that's the last year before covid it's the last year of sensible data we've got data artifacts in the system since then right so based on the mining industry when we were stable last we need 13,388 years of lithium production and 2,324 years of cobalt 
and 6,778 years of graphite. And there's a few others as well. You get the idea. What's happening here is the mining industry was geared to serve a petroleum-based infrastructure. But now we're trying to shift a fundamental technology off petroleum and off internal combustion engines onto something else. Oh. And that's something else we have thought about. You know, so well, we've got the, these ideas of solar panels and wind turbines and electric vehicles. Okay, now they're the only options we have for now. So we will do these things. Green transition will happen. It's just not going to go as planned. It's just not going to go the way we think. What I believe will happen is we'll enter an era of scarcity. All our thinking people will go, that didn't work. So now we've got to think of something else quickly. And there are options. For example, you can you don't have to make batteries out of lithium iron chemistry. It can be out of something else. But all the talk at the moment at the funding level in universities is all about lithium, lithium ion chemistry. You can make them out of sodium or, or fluorine, fluoride, you know, the fluoride in your toothpaste. Um, zinc, you know, uh, th these are things that don't have such restrictions in terms of materials, but you need to build the infrastructure around building these things. So then you've got the idea of, well, how do we generate the energy? And so we've got to go back to the drawing board. So instead of actually sort of substituting one system for another, we're going to rip out coal and gas-fired power plants, and we're going to put in solar and wind and hydro right, in, in, a, in a straight transfer. It, it's, it's like... Um, take one out, put the other one in, she'll be right. And the rest of the system just go on as if nothing has changed. That can't happen. We must go back to the drawing board and reinvent everything according to new limitations. Hmm. And we need new energy systems at the heart of everything. And I wonder, Simon, what happens uh, before we come to that realization? Because it sounds like um, we're going to be in a desperate search for these critical minerals and mm. as you say, some of them are quite rare. It sounds like we're going to have to dig up a lot of earth in the uh, in the pursuit of these uh, very uh, small components of um, of ore. Um, yeah. So that's going to cause its own um, its own environmental um, impact in terms of uh, of excavation of um, of wetlands and other important uh, natural areas. So we'll have that problem to contend with. Also, it sounds like. Right. So, so um, I use when I was working in the mining industry directly, what, what 10, 15 years ago, uh, oh, well, gosh, seven years ago was when I left it, I suppose. So, so um, I was an activist, an, uh, an environmental activist, and I was campaigning against fracking in Australia, where I used to live in a place called the Scenic Rim in, off the Gold Coast. And they were putting doing fracking there and, and the, the devastating problems associated with that. And the people I used to work with used to call me a greeny Sith Lord. Um, so <laughs> they weren't very happy with me at all. Uh, but what I have sort of noticed and observed in looking at supporting feasibility studies and, and talking to the finance side of things that actually get capital investment going to get mining projects going is no one's actually doing any macro scale planning at all. There's no feasibility to, to, for fundamental industrial reform to actually get off one energy system and go to another. And so there's, there's no, what I say is a feasibility study. This is what I was expecting when I went to Europe is um, they're going to start talking about, we're going to now plan X number of thousand new power, power plants. Some will be solar, some will be wind, some will be geothermal, some will be nuclear, and will be in these places. And this is the infrastructure that connects them all. And this is who's going to pay for it. And this is going to operate it. 
Now, that very basic requirement, which is what's required to start any industrial uh, action, really, uh, just wasn't done. And so everyone's actually focusing on one operation at a time, and they're just staying on their patch. You know, they're, they're defending just their little area. They're not sort of thinking about how do we stitch it all together. And the people who are thinking in terms of, you know, well, we've got to, you know, move everything off, uh, like on, on a continent scale, they're thinking in terms of vague platitudes and hopes and dreams. And they're not thinking in terms of engineering reality. Oh. And so that's why I did what I did is to open the door to get that kind of thinking going so people can actually sort of go out and do this work. Maybe that's a, that gets us to um, another thing I wanted to ask you about is are the strategies. And in Canada, we have the government of Canada has released its critical minerals strategy. The province of Newfoundland and Labrador is uh, is in the same process of having this strategy for critical minerals. They are kind of uh, happy talk uh, type documents because they do not um, indicate any of the challenges that you talk about. It's that, uh, you know, we have these minerals in Canada and in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, they very, are of great economic value and we can respond to um, uh, climate change by discovering and using these minerals. Um, and is, so there's not a lot of depth to the um, uh, that thinking. Is that typical, uh, do yes. you find, of, of governance everywhere? So everyone thinks in terms, for example, what the market might do next year or maybe two or three years from now. There's no long-range planning, and it's all about market price. They almost never think about physical material flows, and they certainly don't think about you know, things like resource stewardship or land stewardship. And the people who make these decisions often are completely disconnected to the realities on the ground. And a lot of the environmental issues associated uh, with the outcomes of this, they're even less connected. Uh, you know, And so all of, all of what you sort of said, yes, Canada has an, uh, an amazingly rich mining frontier. That is true. Uh, some of the minerals will be useful in the green transition. Again, that is true. And yes, they'll make a lot of money. Again, that is true. However, it's not going to be nearly enough not even close, and um, a lot of those minerals will be mined by foreign capital investment, and they'll leave Canada. And yes, you'll be rich, but the minerals go back. And do you actually get metal um, like EVs coming back? Uh, probably. You know that, that that's another conversation again because they're all made in uh, Southeast Asia, and there's not enough construction. There's not enough capacity for manufacture there to make so many units so soon, and so the market price of who gets what is going to become inelastic and it's going to be more about offtake agreements rather than than price which means the geopolitically strong countries are going to throw their weight around and demand certain things be given to them and the uh, the poorer nations the smaller nations are just going to be told to wait and, and so so everyone thinks that this will just magically happen it's like going down to the local shop and just buying something off the shelf it's fine uh, and so some of the strategies I hear really worry me. And the most flamboyantly stupid thing I've heard in a long time was mining the seafloor. <laughs> I mean, uh, so so can you imagine a 3,000 tonne an hour operation on the seafloor? Now, no, it's very the, energy intensive. Uh... So you've got the energy problems. It's actually technologically very difficult. It's actually uh, technologically easier to go into space and mine asteroids than actually operate at depth under the sea. Um, but, you know, they're, they're doing it. Like the Chinese are actually doing it, and so are the Japanese. And they're going after rare earth deposits um, and, and everything. And so, so, but the problem is the people doing that, or oh, we, we just want the metal. 
we don't we don't care. So so they'll dig the stuff up, and in doing so, that's going to create a a um, silt a plume, like like a, a lot of uh, um, a, a lot of uh, um, particulates will be stirred up. We're not talking about a little bit; we're talking about a lot, and that's going to wipe out any living system. It's 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 it's, it's going to be very difficult for living. Uh, organisms to survive in an environment with that kind of pollution uh, going around. And and the problem is it's not going to be small. Now, the people who promote this say it's actually going, you know, the glacial um, erosion that happens on the seafloor, you know, things moving back and forth generate a lot of silt as it is. Okay, fair enough. Um, But if we're now talking about delivering 24 million tonnes of copper to the market every year, and now we're going to get her off the sea floor, or you know, obviously that we're, we're, obviously you'll be you know, going after resources on land as, as well. But the, the sheer volume of metals that they want to do for this is huge, and so this will telescope out into an environmental disaster that's going to kill off the rest of the life in the sea if they go that path. And I'm I'm of the opinion it won't work because the logistics can't actually get the volumes needed in time. Right, but in finding that out, they they're going to create an an environmental problem. Time goes so quickly; we just have a couple of minutes. But it sounds like uh, in the we we are inevitably going to go through a period of uh, of dislocation, uh, getting from where we are now to some livable, doable, functional future. Uh, yes. So it sounds like we have some challenging times between to get through between uh, now and that a period of stability that might come in the future. Correct. So, so we are looking about uh, um, a radical reorganization of society. The priorities of our society will shift from what they are now to something else. And the people who control our society now make their decisions very far away from the consequences of those actions. Uh, that is something that is going to... You know, uh, the consequences have to be connected to those people so they understand that we shouldn't go down this path and we should do something else instead. Are, the trouble is the, the ele- elections take place a year from now, two years from now. So <laughs> the the people with, uh, I guess, who are in a position to make decisions are, are motivated on a very different timeline. That's true. They are motivated on a very different timeline um, and they have different priorities and, and they think a lot of these things are not their problem. Hmm. And that that's the issue. The people who make the choices think the realities on the ground are not their problem. Well, Simon, uh, this is an important conversation. I'm, I'm glad we, we have had it because uh, I think whether we want to or not, um, ordinary people have to understand these things so they can be part of uh, this very important conversation. So thanks for giving us a, uh, a primer uh, so we can begin to understand uh, the great challenges that we have in front of us. Welcome. We were speaking with Simon Michaud, Associate Professor of Geometallurgy at the Geological Survey of Finland. And that's it for the program. Look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and introducing our new website, Mi'kmaqMatters.com. The Mi'kmaq Matters team is producer Allison Baker, correspondent Greg Jaynes, and researcher Hillary McGinnis. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Hemsonokamak.